morning, everybody. I'm, uh, I'm reluctant to break the spell there after a, after a song like that <laughs> and, and speak. It was so beautiful, wasn't it? I thank you to the band for all of their uh, rehearsing to lead us and uh, to sing to us uh, this morning. Um, I think I've already been uh, introduced uh, a couple of times by Ben, so you hopefully know who I am. But uh, I always think it's good if, I, if you haven't met people before um, to introduce oneself. So if we haven't met, let me say my name is Ken and I'm the senior minister here at the church. And uh, if you're here for the first time, I really do hope that you've been welcomed or will be welcomed by a regular member of the church family. Now we're thinking this morning about what is all the fuss about Jesus as we've looked at this uh, entrance to Jerusalem that Jesus made, this triumphal entrance from Matthew chapter 21. Um, that Matt read earlier for us. And the crowds lined the streets to to greet Jesus with adoration um, and joy. He was a big deal then, wasn't he? And yet, these days, maybe not so much. He doesn't seem quite so relevant. So why bother with Jesus? Well, let me start with a story to get you thinking. It's a story of a train. And it's uh, chugging through the heartlands of Scotland. And as a Scotsman, where better uh, for a train to be? And uh, just imagine those magnificent pictures, if you may, uh, that you might have seen of of those old steam trains chugging over the Glenfinnan viaduct on the way to the Isle of Skye. Uh, So the steam is billowing up from the engine. And the passengers are seated in compartments, old school style. And as we zoom in on one of those compartments, we find... Four people, an elderly woman knitting, a young lady reading, a university professor waffling on to one of his students, as I'm told university professors sometimes are known to do, and then the university student himself sitting patiently, listening to every word the professor says, as university students always do. Train enters a tunnel. It's shrouded in darkness. There's a sound of a kiss, followed by a loud smack. The train re-emerges into the resplendent daylight. But what has happened, I hear you cry. Okay, nobody's crying now, but I'm hoping you're intrigued enough to let me go on. The old woman thinks she knows what's happened. She she thinks, how refreshing. (laughs) Uh, That... uh, young man has tried to kiss the young lass, but she has taken exception to him and thumped him one. Good for her. Brill. The young lady has a different thought, though. She thinks, how amusing. That young man has tried to kiss me, got the old battle axe by mistake, and she's clubbed him one. (laughs) Hilarious. The university professor has a still different thought, though. He goes, how unfair. That young lad has tried to kiss the young lass. She has tried to thump him one, but missed and hit me by mistake. Is there no justice in the world? Whereas only the university student knows what has actually happened. He has kissed the back of his hand and smacked his university professor for free. (laughs) which is a fantastic trick to remember if you're ever on a train for a long journey with someone who's really annoying you. Not that I am commending that approach to you uh, in any way. But, but you see, darkness confuses, doesn't it? 
It confuses us. And in our dark world, there is so much confusion around about what is true and what is false, what is real or imagined, and what life is for and about. And just like on that train, there's so many ideas floating around in the ether about what we should believe and how we should behave. And we know that they can't all be true, and yet we're still just left stumbling around in the dark trying to give it our best guess as to how to live life and and what to think of it all. Unless, unless, unless someone comes in and turns on the light. And that is what God has done for us in sending sending us Jesus. He has turned on the light, so to speak. As 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked through the doors of human history so that we can stop guessing and we can know. We can know uh, that God is really there. And we can know what he is really like. And we can know the answers to all of life's other big questions. I remember talking to a student a while back who, who like many people do, he had this sneaking suspicion that God was there. And yet he said, I don't think I could ever really know for sure unless God was to come and just present himself in front of me. But the Christian claim is that God has shown up. And we may not be able to see him now. But those who did see him, like this guy Matthew, who wrote this gospel, or the other gospel writers like Mark and Luke and John, they wrote this down so that we can see what he did and hear him speak today. (laughs) And boy, does Jesus want to speak to us in Matthew 21. He's trying to make a statement, isn't he? (laughs) Have a look with me at verse 1. Will you? Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, and if they'd had their sat-nav on at this point, uh, they would know that they just had one more mile to go to Jerusalem, to their destination. And so they could easily have just walked the rest of the way. But Jesus didn't, did he? Instead, we read, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. So what is Jesus trying to say about himself there? I mean, how you make an entrance says a lot about you, doesn't it? So if a woman in a white dress gets out of a vintage car and enters a church and comes up the aisle to some classical piece of music. We all know what she's saying, don't we? She's saying very clearly, I am the bride and I've come to get married. And Jesus is very deliberately stage managing his entrance here too, isn't he? And in this culture, they would have known equally clearly what it meant. He is saying, I am the king. I am the king. Uh, Not just any old king. I am the king who controls the future. I mean, after all, how did he know about the donkeys? And how did he know that the owner of the donkeys would just let his followers walk away with them? 
It seems very unlikely that Jesus had made a prior arrangement. He'd been out of town for quite some time, and he couldn't just have made a booking on easydonkey.com. And the Bible time and time again, well, in it we see Jesus having supernatural knowledge about people he has never met before and places he has never been before. This is not an irregular occurrence for Jesus. And Matthew makes the point in verses 4 and 5 that this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Everything that Jesus did here was to fulfill a prophecy made 550 years earlier by a fella called Zechariah. And that was just one of a number of Old Testament prophecies about God sending his king as the savior of his people that Matthew could have used here. Just imagine if in the year 414, sorry, just imagine if the year, year 1470, Nostradamus had predicted that a guy born in New York who rode onto the scene in the world of business and reality TV with hair, the style of candy floss, would become the president of the United States of America. It would have been uncanny, wouldn't it? If 550 years earlier, that prediction had been made. But maybe you're tempted to think that Jesus is just as big a clown as Donald Trump. Surely he just choreographed this event to make it look like ancient prophecy. <laughs> because if he really could draw the future, then how come within a week of this, he would end up dead? But folks... He saw that coming too. As in the previous chapter, if you have your Bibles open, you can just look across the page. We find in Matthew's Gospel a little heading which says, Jesus foretells his death for a third time. A third time. Yes, a third time. Jesus told them. He told his followers, I'm going up. I'm going to Jerusalem, folks. That's where I'm heading. And here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over to authorities. I'll be mocked, I'll be flogged, and then I'm gonna be put to death, I'll be crucified. And on the third day, I'll rise again. That's what's gonna happen. So he sets himself to go to the cross and to die. Do you see, that first Easter, Jesus wasn't just a victim of circumstances. He wasn't a minor celebrity caught up in the wrong place at the wrong time. No. Even when he goes to his death, he is still controlling and orchestrating everything. No one takes his life from him. He gladly, he willingly gives it up. And here is the issue for us this morning. If he was in control on that day in history, on the darkest day of history, then he's still in control today. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I, I wonder what's holding you back. I wonder if one of the things that's kept you from investigating Christianity or, or, or becoming a Christian is because you fear the future. 
What will people think of you? What will your family think? What will your mates think? What will your other half think? And, and maybe you worry about what might have to change in your life if you put your trust in Jesus. Well, please hear this truth. Jesus is the divine king. He has perfect knowledge and perfect power and can guarantee your future security better than anyone. And if you are a Christian here this morning, likewise, there are many times that we struggle to trust Jesus because of our fear of the future, isn't, don't we? So what decisions for Jesus are you dithering over? Are you holding back on because you worry about what the consequences might be? Take heart, brothers and sisters. Take heart. Because Jesus is not only saying he controls the future here, he's also saying, I'm the king who comes as the servant of all. Have a look at verse 5 again. Behold, see, your king is coming to you. Humble. And that word humble was used of servants, of people who did things for you, who looked out for your interests. And amazingly, Jesus is saying that's what he's like. Again, let's flip back to the previous chapter of Matthew's gospel where just after predicting his death for the third time, Jesus says to his followers, he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. That's the world's idea of poverty, isn't it, folks? Worldly leadership, it's like a pyramid with everybody scrambling to get to the top, stepping on other people's heads. And, and when they get there, leading in such a way that they treat those under them as their servants. But Jesus says, Matthew 20, verse 26, not 26, not so with you. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. (laughs) That is incredible, is it not? If Jesus is who he claimed to be, the King, God himself, he is the one person in the universe who has the absolute right to be served. And yet he, he comes saying, I haven't come to make you do that. Because you can't make people serve you. Not willingly, not from the heart. Force can't change your heart. Only love can. And so Jesus came to serve us by dying on a cross so that he could offer us forgiveness for our sins And call us, not force us, back into a relationship with him. When I met my wife, Fiona, who many of you will know, I have to say that it wasn't love at first sight. In fact, moments after being introduced to me, Fiona turned and walked away. She turned my head. I turned her stomach, literally. When we finally did get on our first date, she vomited in the bathroom at the restaurant we were in. 
Now, to overcome Fiona's initial reluctance, or should I say repulsion, at the thought of going out with me and eventually marrying me, I could have, I could have kidnapped her and drugged her with a strong aphrodisiac and paid a minister to marry us while a friend of mine uh, watched her, stood over her with a shotgun. You're getting worried now, aren't you? <laughs> I didn't. I didn't, okay? You'll be relieved to hear. Because that kind of thing generally tends to be frowned on in polite society. <laughs> but more tellingly and more importantly, it's because I wanted Fiona to get to know me and love me and commit to me of her own free choice. And I wonder if this isn't why God doesn't make himself blindingly obvious to us. Like that student I spoke to a few years ago wanted him to do. And he leaves us simply with this sneaking suspicion that he is there. It is because he doesn't want to force us to believe. No, he wants to give us the opportunity to, to seek after him uh, and to come to know him and to tr learn to trust him and follow him of our own free will. Later on in, sorry, earlier on in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says this, he says, come to me for I am gentle and humble in heart. <laughs> that is mind-blowing. The king of all kings says to us, I am gentle and humble in heart. I come to you <laughs> not to be served, but to serve. So we can trust him. He's the king who died on the cross for you, which says loud and clear that he does care for your welfare, far more than you do, in fact. And he does have your very best interests at heart. Uh, and we need to remember that. We need to cling on to that when we have to go through hard times in this broken and dark world. For in the hardness, it's easy to start thinking that it's the Lord Jesus that is being hard. And who doesn't care. But at times like that, we have to say, no. He came to serve. He came to die on a cross for me. So it makes no sense to believe that he would care that much for me then and then be careless about me in these things that I am finding difficult now. He's the king who amazingly is the servant of all. And can I just say, if you're a Christian here this morning, here is the epitaph that you want to have on your gravestone. The servant of all. That's what you want to have written there. Uh, so much so, in fact, that uh, for people who are coming to the church and are looking into Christianity, I, I will quite often say to them, if you do not see the leaders in this church serving people, please leave. Don't stay. Because this is obviously not genuine Christianity at the heart of what we're doing here. We follow Jesus who on his coronation day is not lording it over those in Jerusalem on a charger. No, he comes on a donkey, humble and gentle of heart. And that shows, thirdly and finally, that Jesus is also saying, I am the king who comes in peace. 
You see, in Bible times, if you're a king and you're coming to make war or, or, or put your rebellious people in one of your territories down, then you came in a chariot or on a war horse, which is, I guess is the modern day, uh, was their, their equivalent of a, of a modern day tank. But if you didn't want to f- use force, if, if you wanted to come in peace, what did you come on? You came on a donkey. And that's how Jesus is coming at this point because he wants to make peace between us and God. Because we are not naturally God's friends. In fact, in fact, the Bible tells us that though God is the maker and the rightful ruler of this world and has given us it all richly for our enjoyment, are we are suspicious of him, are we not? We might be happy to have him on standby as an insurance policy or as a genie in a, in a lamp to rub when we get into trouble. And we may even go so far as to want to have him as an advisor or a consultant. But we refuse to let him ride into our hearts as our king and worship him with everything we've got. And if we aren't his friends, that makes us his enemies. And so later on in the Bible story in Revelation chapter 19, Jesus is presented to us actually as a king who comes on a white battle horse. Because the Bible is clear that one day in the future, Jesus is going to return. This time, not as the servant of all, but as the judge of all. To crush evil and to bring punishment to his enemies. And the last thing that God wants for us is for us to be on the wrong side of Jesus on that day, which is why first he has sent his one and only son to die on a cross to pay for our sins and offer us forgiveness and peace with him. Now, I don't know if this was the case for you, but I think in in every school, there's a really annoying little kid who will sneak up behind people when they're standing at the edge of a road about to cross or, 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 or beside a swimming pool or maybe sitting beside an open window and they will, they will grab the person there and, and push them forward and then pull them back and shout, saved you! And in that split second, if it's you, you, you suddenly feel like you are falling and you, you're absolutely heart, heart in mouth while everybody else around you finds it hilarious. But you don't. Because you're red with embarrassment because you squealed like a startled little pig. And because you were never really in that much danger anyway. Who was it? Can you remember? In your school? I remember really clearly who it was in mine. That's right. It was me. And I would run away laughing and giggling to myself while the person, my victim, would be just really, really irritated because they hadn't needed saving at all. And I I think that's how some people feel when they are told about Jesus dying to save sinners. They feel as if the Bible has crept up on them and grabbed them from behind and shouted, saved you. And they respond with some irritation. Well, I I don't need saving. I'm not a sinner. My so-called sins are not even that big a problem anyway. 
Or can I just gently say that if that were true, then Jesus would not have chosen to die in the way that he did. How do we know that? Because if we flick forward in Matthew's gospel, we'd find Jesus so tortured by the thought of going to the cross that he falls to the ground and he prays, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus prayed that agonizing prayer three times. The decision to die bearing the punishment for our sins was not easily taken. If there had been any other way to complete the mission, Jesus would have found it. But our sin, our sin is so serious that it was necessary for him to die in that way. Christian, see your Savior riding to the cross. If your King was willing to do that for you, what would you not be willing to do for him? And if you're not a Christian here this morning, please see that we are not good people on the road to heaven. We are rebels who deserve God's fiercest punishment. (laughs) But incredibly, the justice of God has been satisfied on the cross. And now he offers us a peace that enables us to enjoy God forever. His terms of peace are very clear and very comforting. Jesus says, give up your sin and turn to me for salvation. This is your first time looking into Christianity then. Let me encourage you to take some time to investigate things further. Ben is going to come back at the end of the service and give you a few options for that. However, When we know enough, then we should make the decision without delay. And so could it be that this is the moment for you to turn to Jesus and give your life to him? This peace deal is available, but it is not automatic. Will you accept it? If we are to experience life with God, then we must turn to and trust Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. And if you want to do that this morning, if you feel you've got to that point, then the moment I'm going to pray a prayer that will give you the opportunity to do that. In fact, we're going to put it up on the screen now. It goes like this. Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sorry for all the many ways in which I have failed to recognize you as the maker and king of my life. Please forgive me. Thank you that you rode into Jerusalem that first Easter to die on the cross to offer me peace with God now and for eternity. Thank you that you offer me forgiveness and new life by your Spirit. I now turn from everything which I know is wrong and put my trust in you. Help me to live with you and for you every day. Amen. And if you want to make that your prayer this morning and start the journey as a follower of Jesus. So, or come back to that journey if you've been drifting and turned from Jesus for whatever reason. Then just pray it in your head 
as I pray it now. Let me pray for us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sorry for all the many ways in which I have failed to recognize you as the maker and king of my life. Please forgive me. Thank you that you rode into Jerusalem that first Easter to die on the cross, to offer me peace with God now and for all eternity. Thank you that you offer me forgiveness and new life by your spirit. I now turn from everything which I know is wrong and put all my trust in you. Help me to live with you and for you each and every day until you come again. Amen. Well, if you've prayed that prayer, then it'd be great if you could come and see myself um, or Ben or perhaps someone who's brought you along this morning and, and talk to them about that and um, uh, find out what might be the next steps in your journey. Uh, before that, though, we're going to close our service by singing together uh, a song which gives us a brilliant picture of Jesus, uh, not only riding but walking towards the cross and his death and his resurrection that first Easter. Why don't we stand and sing this together? <laughs>